Good morning. My name is Glenn Warner. I am not one of the elders, uh, but my family has been, uh, and I've been members here at Hope Bible Church for, uh, since the beginning of this year. Uh, we've been attending uh, since September of last year. Uh, I teach full-time uh, as a Bible teacher for Savannah Christian Preparatory School. Um, and prior to that, I was, well, this past year I was teaching, I've been teaching full-time. I was part-time for four years prior to that and also served as uh, the pastor of Grace Community Church in Rincon, Georgia for five years. I was interim pastor and then pastor. Um, prior to that, I've been involved in student ministry in various capacities for about 15 years. So uh, that's just um, some of who I am and where, uh, kind of why I'm standing up here this morning as well. Um, but if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 126. Uh, this summer, our elders have been preaching through the Psalms of Ascent that run from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And these songs are prayers of God's people that are sung as they would journey from around Israel and make their regular pilgrimages on feast days and during special times of worship to the temple in Jerusalem. And so we're going to be looking at Psalm 126 this morning. I would like to read that psalm for you, and then I'm going to pray and ask for God's help to uh, just illuminate his word to our eyes, to our hearts, to our lives, and ask him to bless it as we hear from him this morning. So, Psalm 126. Um, I'm going to go ahead and begin reading. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Uh, let's pray and just ask for the Lord's help to understand his word. God, we praise you that you have given us the gift of your word. And I thank you for these psalms that are songs of worship and prayers of worship that have been sung and prayed by your people down through, really, millennia. Lord, as we hear your word today, would you please... Drive it into our hearts. Would you help us not only to understand, but to apply your word in faith as we understand what this psalm meant for the original singers and hearers, and now what it means for us in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. Help us, please, Lord. Help us to uh, repent from the things that, that have been holding on to us and that we have been holding on to and turn to you this morning. Help us to hear with ears of faith. Help us to see with eyes of faith. Help us to have hearts that are not hard and stony, but soft and tender, able to receive your life-giving water from your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, 
In verse 4, there is a word at the end of that verse, it says Negev, all right? Or you could pronounce it Negev with a V sound. The Negev is a geographic location in Israel, mostly in the southern part or in the southeast, that is a very dry and arid land. Think desert, all right? Think that when Jesus was led by the Spirit for 40 days into the wilderness, this is where he went. No water, no plants, no shade, just brown, rocky soil and hot, scorching sun bearing down on you. The Negev in this area of Israel, receives little to no rainfall every year. We're talking less than three inches, maybe less than that. And the only way for life to continue in this area, which it does, or for the cultivation of land to happen in this area, which it does, is to take advantage of the seasonal floods that occur every year. And not from the rain that falls in this area, but from the rain that falls in other parts of Israel that drains down into this area. Because one of the places that you can find in the Negev is a body of water called the Dead Sea. And you may know that the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because nothing is alive in it. And there's nothing alive in the Dead Sea because the mineral content in this water is so high, uh, there's nothing that can support life. So to live in this area, you have to be ready to take advantage of the water when it comes. So often, however, the water that flows into these areas runs into these channeled streams, these riverbeds that are dry for most of the year. In their location, they're called wadi. And the, the riverbed will fill up once a year, maybe. And so often, that water just runs through the area. It may take away a lot of the topsoil, and it just runs all the way through. And people try to get out of the way to survive. And then the water continues to run down, either into the Dead Sea or all the way down into the very southern part of Israel, into the Red Sea. And it's gone. And I wonder, as we think about this psalm, and as we hear this word, restored fortunes, twice in this psalm, I wonder how often does the living water of the Holy Spirit of God flow through our land and yet we are unable to take advantage of it because we have not made ourselves ready and instead of that water coming into us, it flows over us and it is gone before we are able to make use of it. One way that people in these areas take advantage of this water is through practices because they know that the water is coming and so they have developed ways to what they call harvest water, right? 
and they start to change the landscape in order to capture that water when it comes so that instead of running over the land and taking a lot of that soil away from it that would be profitable for growing things, they've learned how to create land structures to capture the water when it comes and hold the water in ponds and in the way that they plant their plants so that the water actually stays a while instead of running over the land, it seeps down into it. And as we look at this psalm today and we think about, okay, what does this song sung thousands of years ago, probably written during the time of exile or at least sung as the people of Israel were returning back to the land, having been in exile in Babylon. What in the world is this song about somebody making a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem? I mean, we're not Muslims. We don't make pilgrimage to Mecca. We're not Jews. We don't make pilgrimages to Israel. What does this have to do with us? Here's what it has to do with us. We often see and recognize the restorative work of God in the world right? It's easy to see just to know facts, right? Facts are easy. We can see that God uh, brought the Jews back and they rebuilt the temple. We saw how God returned God's people to his land. We even, as New Testament believers, look back in history and we see, oh yeah, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. We can say we believe in the restoration of God very easily. The problem is, how often do we fail to allow God's restorative process to take place in our own lives and hearts? Knowing facts about God's restoration is one thing. Living out of the abundant waters that God provides is another. And we can easily falter to live out God's word as agents, not just seeing God's restoration in our own life, but living as agents of restoration in the lives around us. You see, this psalm, Psalm 126, may reflect the historical situation of the exiles who returned from Babylon with great hopes, only to find those hopes severely tested by the reality of the difficulties they faced returning to the promised land. All right, noticing a crackle in my microphone. Is that me? Is this... I think I'm in all the way. I'll just, just won't deal with it. All right. So what the Israelites face, it may, it may be, I may need to pull this away from my face a little bit. All right. What the Israelites faced in their day is no less true in our day. Right? The Israelites, and this is why it's important to know your history and read your Bibles. Okay? So I know we say it. I know our elders say it. I'm going to say it again. You should read your Bible. All right? You should read your Bible every day. You should turn off the news and read your Bible. It's going to help you more than watching the news. Turn off your podcast, read your Bible. All right? I'm not saying don't do those things. I'm just saying read your Bible first. Uh, in, in Israel's day, when the Israelites returned back to the land, it was an amazing thing. God even used a Persian king named Cyrus to fund their trip back and to help build the temple. God used uh, the cupbearer to King Ahasuerus, Nehemiah, who King Ahasuerus came after Cyrus. Nehemiah came all the way from Persia as a Jew to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and receive funding from the government. I mean, God can use... Secular kings and secular governments to, to fund his work 
all around the world. Okay, but when the people actually returned back into the land, uh, it, what they thought was going to happen wasn't necessarily what actually did happen. And especially if you pay attention to that part of the Old Testament and the prophets like Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi, and if you look at the historical books of Nehemiah and Ezra, this gives you a good picture of what was happening in the land because it wasn't all a bed of roses. Yes, they had a lot of great things happening, and that temple was being rebuilt, but very often the rebuilding of the temple stalled out. Even when Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, he was going back to Jerusalem over a hundred years after the walls of Jerusalem had been knocked down, okay? So it pays to know your history of what's going on. And if you read those prophets, you'll see that these people were dealing with uh, inequality. They were dealing with bad government. They were dealing with hearts that weren't true to worship to the Lord. They were dealing with desires of building their own houses instead of building the temple. All kinds of things they had to deal with. Very, very practical day-to-day -day issues that, guess what? Just like they dealt with those things in their day, we still deal with these things in our day. And yet, we claim to see the work that God is doing in the world in many ways. But when the rubber meets the road in our daily lives, rather than working through our tears and sorrow, we are so often overcome by life's difficulties. All right? So we're going to look at this psalm today. It's very, very practical. And this is a song that you can sing when you are tempted to think that God has somehow abandoned you or that the harvest of God that he has promised in your life is not coming quickly enough. If you notice in the psalm, there's two parts. All right? I want to... I'd approach this psalm in two ways today. I want to tell you, I want to look at it from just the aspect of the literature, right? It's a psalm that was sung. Then I also want to understand it in two ways because the original Israelites who sung this psalm had one understanding of it, and it's true. But we have a progressive revelation of God, and when Jesus Christ came, he helped us to see that this psalm was not just a part of what the Israelites knew in their day, it's also a part of what we know in our day. All right? If you look at that psalm, you'll notice probably in most of your Bibles that there's a little gap between the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. All right, so this psalm has two parts to it. And you can see that as well when you look closely at verse 1. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. This is like a declaration, right? It's talking about when some particular thing happened. Well, if you look at the beginning of verse 4, you see two words that are similar to verse 1, but they're said in a little bit different way. Verse 4 is a request. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So we see two parts to this psalm. That's why the editors of the English Bible put a little gap there. It's, there's no gap in the ancient scriptures. It's you, you, you understand that there's two parts through different means if you're reading this in Hebrew. We're not Hebrew speakers, so we're not reading this in Hebrew this morning, but the uh, English Bible there is showing us here that there's two parts. So the first part talks about the God of restoration, and ultimately we're going to see he's the God of resurrection. And the second part talks about how we live and interact with the Lord of Harvest, who also becomes our Lord of Healing. 
okay? So that's, that's the way we're going to go today. I want to start with this first part, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. We're going to understand what it meant for the Old Testament Israelite, and then we're going to understand a little bit about what it means for us today as believers in Christ who have the fulfillment of this promise to Zion, and then we're going to move on to, verse, uh, to part 2. So part 1, verses 1 through 3, if you're taking notes, here's what I'm saying. Let the God of restoration make you glad in him for who he truly is, the God of resurrection. All right, let me repeat that again. Let the God of restoration make you glad in him for who he truly is, the God of resurrection. Look at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. I want to zero in on this first word here, restored, because the whole psalm is about being restored. Verse 1 begins with it, and verse 4 pleads for it. And the God of restoration, it's very important that we understand what this word restore means as the Bible, biblical writers, the Bible authors meant it. You see, to restore comes from a root word that means essentially to turn. All right? Literally, it's quite literally means a turnaround. Okay? Uh, there's another word that we commonly use that also comes from this root word. It's repent. Okay? And, and the two words, restore and repent, don't necessarily mean the same thing, but they come from the same source. And it both involve a turning around. And to restore in Hebrew is a turning around accomplished by God for his glory. You see, God is the only one who can restore the fortunes of Zion and his people. And God's people all through history have been and remain powerless to affect restorative change on their own. And what are some reasons for this, right? We're very weak. We're tainted with sin. World powers are too great for us. We are scattered and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God's people often lack adequate resources, that is, on their own, right? We always lack adequate resources on our own. We are also inadequate to judge ourselves and people around us properly because we don't have the wisdom and insight that God does. And when God restores, you see, God restores because he's been offended, not the other way around. And we are not the ones, you know, when we need restoration, we're not the ones who have been offended. And so ultimately we're the offenders and we need this restoration. But let me give you another example of what restoration means as God defines it. Another prophet, a man by the name of Ezekiel, used this word. Ezekiel was a prophet who, who actually got taken away into exile, okay? And as God's people in Jerusalem were dealing with being under siege by Babylon, Ezekiel was one of those who had already been sent off into exile, and he was giving God's people messages about what God was doing. And he says in verse 39, all right, I'm sorry, not verse 39. You don't need to turn there. Just, I, you might want to write it down. Ezekiel 39, 25 through 27. I'm just going to read it briefly because I want to help us understand what this word restoration really means as God sees it. Ezekiel 39, 25 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land 
with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Do you see how God is very focused on vindicating his holiness and restoring the glory of his name in his definition of restoration, right? This is key to understanding the entire psalm. When we think about restoration, we often become very self-focused. But when God thinks about restoration, here's what he means. He is jealous, number one, for his holy name. There is a promise here that when God restores what he's doing is vindicating his holiness, not supplying his people's happiness primarily, even though that's part of it. God is going to gather Israel from where he has scattered them. Notice how God is the prime mover in this definition also. God is going to enter into judgment, not only with his people, but also with the enemies who have hurt them. God will forgive his people and make a way for them to enjoy his holiness, not their own private pleasures. And God is going to erase his people's sin and shame, and God will condemn all his enemies and give them the just punishment that they deserve. And when God restores the fortunes of Israel, he's going to restore his people to their land through a restored relationship and restored worship. This is what it means in part, all right, when we say, let the God of restoration make you glad in him for who he truly is. is very important to understand that we do not get to be the ones who define what restoration looks like in our lives. God is the one who has already defined restoration for us, and he is leading us through it and to it for his ends, not ours. Verse 1 also talks about God restoring the fortunes of Zion. Zion is a physical place. It's the top of the Temple Mount with spiritual significance because of God's choice and God's work. God takes the initiative and does the work which he not only calls but also empowers and allows his people to participate in for the proclamation of his name and the praise of his holiness. When God leads his people to Zion, it's for his purposes. In the return from exile, God's people had an opportunity to rejoice greatly in the Lord, right? As he called them back, they said, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And even the nations recognized what God was doing as they said, the Lord has done great things for them. They said, when God restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We have here a reversal where reality, God's reality, is better than all the dreams that we could make for ourselves. 
and the welfare of the people is wrapped up in the work of God and the blessing of God when he restores his holy place. Now, I told you there's an Old Testament understanding because the people in Old Testament times were marching up to this hill, and they were looking to that temple as the place where God dwelled. Well, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that in the spring, we've been preaching, our elders have been preaching through John, the Gospel of John. Here's the amazing thing, and here's the amazing thing, all right? So often, our dreams we have when we see God do a work in the world do not translate into reality. We don't even recognize that God has done a work of any kind of restoration at all. We may redefine God's work of restoration, making it all about us. We may confuse our dreams with God's will. Or we refuse to believe that God's dream and God's vision can become reality because we fundamentally lack faith in God. Or we may have a kind of faith in God, but we refuse to act on the faith that God has planted in us. Or we just sinfully reject the dream and the call to faith and the call to work outright. But when God restores the fortunes, here's what we understand is really true in the New Testament. What we see from John chapter 2 is that Jesus actually is that temple that God has restored. Here's what I mean. In John chapter 2, Jesus went into the temple, he threw out the money changers, and drove out the animals. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day were so upset at what he had done, they're like, what sign do you give that you are doing these things? And do you remember what Jesus said? Destroy this temple, and in what? Three days, I will raise it up. Now, was he talking about the temple that he was in, the physical location that, Jesus, that Herod had built? No. John tells us very clearly he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, look, this temple is not the temple. This temple is a picture of me. I am the place where people meet with God. We find it later on in John chapter 4 where he tells the woman at the well in Samaria, look, you, there's coming a day, woman, let me tell you, where neither on this mountain, he's talking about Mount Gerizim in Samaria, or on that mountain, the mountain of the temple of Israel in Jerusalem where you will worship, because God is worship, seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And in our day, when we look back on Zion, we know, because Jesus said it, that what God did was to take his temple and rebuild it in the person and work of Christ. And as we place our faith in Christ, we are built up as a temple in Christ as well. Another interesting thing that we have already heard Jesus say in John chapter 7 is on one of those feast days where all these people came from all over Israel to worship at the temple. At the end of John chapter 7, on the very last day of this feast, Jesus lifts up his voice and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that glorification process that John is talking about is about his death and resurrection. Now, pay attention because this is very important. 
Remember, the Old Testament authors did not know this. They were waiting for a fulfillment of God's promises, and they didn't know how God was going to fulfill their prayer request. They just knew that he was, and they were waiting for that day to arrive. The question is, well, the reality was, the Jews of Jesus' day were not ready to receive that flow of living water that God sent in the day of Jesus. The question for us is, will we be ready to take advantage of the water when it's flowing? And that's the second half of this psalm. Number one is, let, let the God of restoration make you glad in him for who he truly is, the God of the resurrection. Verses four through six remind us this, pray and work in faith knowing that the Lord of the harvest is also the Lord of our healing. Now here's where it gets really good. The work of restoration that God has already done gives his people great confidence to pray for God to bring restoration in their own lives, even in the middle of great adversity. When we sing these songs and we pray these prayers, we are linked with God's people down through history. And we are a part of the work that God is doing, not just in the past, but also the work that God will do in the future. And I want to zero in on this idea of streams. Remember, I told you about uh, how some people in these desert areas can take advantage of seasonal floods by being ready. One thing that people do is in the higher elevations, a lot of times there's these watersheds, right, where the rain comes from upper elevations and then it flows. See, water always flows downhill, right? And in the upper elevations, what they'll do is they'll create these big retention ponds so that the water can actually stay when it arrives. And as more water comes, a lot of times that water will overflow those boundaries. So what they do is they divert water intentionally down to other areas and they create other little trenches and they bury, they, the water's flowing downhill. They'll dig a trench and create a mound on the other side and they'll plant their gardens or whatever it is they're growing on that mound. So as the water flows down, it carries the runoff with it. The trenches trap the sediment, but it also traps the water so that the water no longer runs away, but it actually seeps down into the ground. And what begins to happen in these communities is it actually restores the groundwater table so that their wells don't run out, their irrigation comes down from on high, and the the ground becomes resaturated with the water that would otherwise have been lost. And whole communities are being restored in places like the coast of Saudi Arabia, arid plateaus in India, among the poorest of the poor, and in cattle ranchers. In I've been watching a lot of YouTube this week, okay, seeing how this works. And it is incredible and thinking, wow, God put this wisdom into the natural world. Huh, I wonder if there's some spiritual application for this. And I believe that there is, because if you look in the Old Testament, we see over and over that the land and the people and the physical activity that happens in the Old Testament is designed by God to teach spiritual lessons. The Apostle Paul said it to the Corinthians. He said, look, what happened to those Israelites was happening to them so that we could look and learn. And as God also teaches us, look, God teaches lessons from agriculture, okay? Here's the thing. Here's how this goes, right? We look to God through his word, okay? That's first. 
And now we start looking around us and looking at the world through the lens of Scripture. And so if I'm beginning to see, look, when I hear about ideas like restorative farming and permaculture and water harvesting, okay, those could just be technical terms that really have no meaning to my life. But when I understand that the God who made this world is also the God who's going to remake it, and the God of creation is the God of recreation and resurrection, i got to think that a lot of these principles are here if we have eyes to see. And so we're going to pray and work in faith, knowing that the Lord of the harvest is the Lord of our healing. And look at this idea, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. One of the reasons why I love the Bible so much is because it's so honest about the way life really is, isn't it? There's sowing and reaping. That's just get up every day, alarm goes off, right? Doesn't it? It's funny how that works. Next day, you got to do it all over again. Sometimes it feels like Groundhog's Day, all right? And you're just doing the same thing over and over and over. But here's the thing. The work of faith is the faithful work. And you can still labor, labor and work even when you don't want to. Why? Because God is working. And we labor in his work, under his promise. How do we know? God's already restored the fortunes of Zion. God already brought resurrection through the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we taking advantage of the water that is coming to us through him? And look, there can be a mix of sorrow and work and joy in life. There's an acknowledgement that God's people experience hardship and trial, even while expecting times of refreshment and hope. And sowing and reaping are still facts of life, along with the emotional ups and downs. Here's the other cool thing about this psalm. It says in verse five, uh, verse 4, restore our fortunes. It says in verse 5, those who sow in tears. Sowing and reaping is a community project. And isn't that interesting that when Jesus died and rose again, he didn't just call like a diaspora, like a, a, a spreading of, he didn't just call like individuals to follow him, right? He put them together in groups called churches, right? And yes, there's one big universal church of which we're all a part, but there's local churches all over the world doing the work of God in their unique culture, in their unique context. We also see in verse 6 that what affects the community does affect the individual. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. There's going to be community rejoicing. There's going to be individual rejoicing. There's going to be community lament. There's going to be individual sorrow. But here's the thing. God is the difference maker in our pleas for blessing and our hope for the reward of our work. And there should be an expectation that the wait and the work may be long, but the reward will be sure. And we weep and we work and we wait. And we are at the mercy of God guided by the character of God, but our surety, get this, our surety comes from his promises, not our production. 
This is what the life of faith looks like because God restored the fortunes of Zion. God resurrected Jesus. We place our faith in Christ. God has resurrected us. And now he's designed for us to live out of the living water that he's placed inside of us. Jesus is the reservoir of our living water. Let me just challenge you with one last thing. What does this waiting on the Lord look like? Right? What does this mean practically? All, so many times, right, we hear great words on Sunday, sounds good, love that past message, Pastor, thank you so much for sharing, and then maybe even Sunday afternoon, the ride home from church, things go haywire. Right? Doesn't that happen? Listen, waiting, what's this idea, right? Those who sow in tears shall, that's a future orientation, shall reap in shouts of joy. Look, some of y'all are sowing in tears today. But waiting on the Lord, here's two pitfalls to avoid. Waiting on the Lord, number one, is not passive acquiescence to our surrounding circumstance. Sometimes we get this idea that, well, God's done it all, so I don't have to do anything, praise God. That's unbiblical and ungodly. It's not a life of faith. But oftentimes we can also fall off on the other side of the ditch and think that waiting on the Lord is then planning our own activity and then asking God or assuming that God will bless the ideas that we've already come up with. And those look like two very different things, but they're based in the same root of unbelief. One unbelief leads to this way and says, I don't need to do anything. We see how God condemns that attitude with the servant who buried his one talent in the sand because he said, I can't do anything with it. You're a harsh judge. I better just wait. And he was cast out into the outer darkness in Jesus' parable. Some people go on the other side and they get real busy for Jesus. And they're doing lots of things. And I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to save up this. I'm going to save up that. We need to go over here. We need to do this. I need to be at church. Blah, blah, blah. And they look like really good religious activities. The problem with this is Jesus also said there's going to be a lot of people on the day of judgment who put all of their busy activities that they did for Jesus and they'll say, didn't we do all these many mighty works in your name? And Jesus is going to look back at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. See, waiting on the Lord is not passive acquiescence. It's not planning activity. It's patiently advancing patiently advancing in the work that God has revealed through his word that he wants his people to participate in. This patient advancement is simultaneously hopeful and at times tearful because the faithful believer has already seen the work that God has done. She will trust in God's character to continue to accomplish what God said he will do. He believes that his work will succeed because it is God who empowers it. The faithful woman knows that she has a responsibility to act in faith, even if her tears are the first drops of rain that God will use to water the seed she's planting in faith because God has said he will keep track of all those tears and use them to advance his purposes here on earth. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Here's how I know. And this is what makes Christianity, the God of the Bible, different from every other God. There is no Allah. 
There is no force with a light side and a dark side. Okay? There is no... Uh, the Mormons got it wrong. All right? There's no third level of heaven that you're going to get to if you get baptized in the holy underwear. Jehovah's Witnesses got it wrong. Listen. Our American prosperity gospel gets it wrong. Okay? Because God is not interested in our best life now. Jesus even said it. Woe to you who are happy now, for you're going to be sad. Woe to you, but happy are you who are poor now, for you shall be filled. How do we know that this God of resurrection is also the Lord of the harvest and healing? Here's what makes Christianity different from every other religion, even the false Christian idols that we come up with. We do not serve a God who is unwilling to participate in the very same thing he's called us to do. There is no other God, no other God like our God who took on flesh, lived a human life, and died and rose again to accomplish the salvation of his people and the vindication of his holy name here on the earth. And so when the tears and the trials come, listen, y'all, let's be honest. Some of those tears we cry are just alligator tears, and we just need to quit whining, right? Right? And... This happens to kids, but kids, this also happens to adults, all right? And we can whine and cry. But look, if, if you're a child in here, if you're like in teenage or younger, right, there's times when you're just whining about something that you know you need to do, and it, you're crying, and you know what alligator tears are? Crocodiles and alligators have tear ducts that just water to keep their eyes moist, and so if somebody says, oh, you're crying alligator tears, what they mean is they don't really mean anything. They're just like, you're whining. Stop whining, right? Okay, but I'm not picking on kids today because we adults can do this too. And sometimes we have tears because God's exercising muscles we've never used before and it's painful, right? But we can see that it's for our good. Uh, in just a few days, we're going to start seeing some Olympic athletes on the television, right? And it takes them a long time. This, this, this year took a lot longer than normal to get to the Olympics. It took an extra year, all right? But they had to give up and sacrifice a lot of things, and it causes a lot of pain. But it's worth it to achieve the goals that they've set out. But sometimes... We have deep tears, deep tears that come out of places in our lives that are in need of deep healing work of Christ. And this is where God goes so deep into your life to remove things out of our lives and we've grown so accustomed to them that we actually believe that it's a part of us, but it's not. But they're in there. Those roots are in there deep. And so God has to reach down deep, and he starts pulling things out. And this is why it is so important that we follow Jesus through the whole process of life, death, burial, and resurrection. Because 
just like Jesus went and he followed his God into the grave, doing what the Father commanded, we're following Christ's examples. And if we are to, t- to follow Christ, we have to take up our cross and follow Christ. The problem is when God starts stripping those things out of our lives that have grown so deep, that we've lived with for so long, that we've become so accustomed to, they just seem like it's a part of my life. This is who I am. God, you can't take that away from me. We cry deep, deep tears. This isn't the regular trials of life that I'm talking about. I'm talking about deep grief and sadness and loss. Let me leave you with this message of hope today. When you place your faith in Christ, and you're sowing in tears, God is going to take that sorrow and that loss, and he's going to use it to enlarge your soul, to give you a greater capacity for your enjoyment in him. And these are things that we need to let God take away, as painful as it is, as it, it seems like it's not supposed to go this way. That's what it's going to seem like in your life. That tragedy was not supposed to happen. This, this hardship was not supposed to happen. This person I was not supposed to be with. This whatever, right? You're, what is, you know that thing that you're thinking of right now that's in your life. Guess what? That's the Holy Spirit doing a little prodding this morning. So I want to close. I'm finished. I'm done. But here's what I want to do as a final activity, Okay. Last week we had some scripture memorization, or two weeks ago, when was it? we had some scripture memorization. All right, this morning, I just want to close in prayer. You know, but you know how often, right, you gather around the table, you're like, hey, fold your hands, close your eyes, right? That's a posture of prayer we're pretty familiar with. Maybe some of y'all, sometimes when you pray, also will get down on your knees. Kneeling is a posture of prayer that we're familiar with. I want to show you another posture of prayer today that you can use. And this is not, just like we fold our hands, we bow our heads, we close our eyes, we kneel. We know that these are not like things that motivate God to give us things that we want, right? This is nothing mystical. This is nothing that's like, I'm going to make God do something, all right? What this is, is a physical motion that helps outline our exterior with what should be true on the interior. So as I close in prayer today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold your hands out like this, out to your side. But notice my fists are closed. This represents the thing that I'm holding on to. Again, this is nothing mystical. This is nothing. It's like we all used to this and this. All right, here's another thing you can get used to just as a demonstration of prayer of faith. So as I pray, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. But hold those hands out. And here's what we're saying. Those, when we say, listen, this is coming from God's word. Think about that thing that's in your life. And you don't have to say this out loud. You can say it silently to yourself. As you open your hands up, you say, God, will you please take it? Right? Just go ahead and do that. God, will you please take and open your hands? And then, when those hands are open, you can say to God, God, I'm waiting and willing to receive what you have for me. And this can be something else that you do as you pray in addition to Folding your hands, closing your eyes, bowing your head. So I'm going to invite you to just 
remain in that posture right there with your hands open. I'm going to close this in prayer. Tyler's going to lead us in uh, the next song we're going to sing. But I'd like to just pray that God would do his work in us and through us. Oh, God, you are the God of Zion. You are the God of resurrection. You are the God of Christ. You are the God of faith. You are the God of the church. You are the God of your people, and you have made promises. We know that if a seed falls into the ground, yes, it will die, but if it dies, it will bear much fruit. And as we stand here, Lord, as we sit here with our hands open to you, God, what we're saying to you is, would you please do the work in our lives that you have promised you would do? And please help us to wait on you, not in passive acquiescence, not with planning all sorts of activity, but God, patiently and advancing in the work that you've already called us to do. And God, when you do that work, we will find our joy in you as you define restoration for us, and we will reap with shouts of joy. And we trust in you through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.